huge savings on new and previously leased furnishings. That's right, huge savings. At Court Furniture Clearance Center, choose from our wide variety of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. You'll find sofas from $199.99 and more. Everything in our 9,000 square foot showroom is Court certified, guaranteed, and in stock. Ready for delivery or to take home today. Visit our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off. Welcome to Understanding the Law, Week in Review. The show is hosted by Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes and is a service of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont and Associates. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law, Week in Review, is a weekly radio broadcast discussing recent legal and business news and topics. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. And now, your hosts, Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes. Good morning and happy Columbus Day, if that's what you say. It's... uh. Episode 89, believe it or not. We're creeping up. We're creeping up on 100. So that's good. Um, Before we get into today's topics, let me just thank our sponsor. Today's show is sponsored, excuse me, by Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks on the Internet. Audible has a massive library of more than 100,000 audio programs, and they're providing our listeners with an exclusive offer. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio, and you can download a free audiobook. Absolutely no strings attached. In fact, today we're going to be talking about Ebola in a couple of the stories. And so you may want to read either Beating Back the Devil by uh, Marin McKenna or Ebola, The Prepper's Guide to Surviving the Killer Virus by B. Hardcastle. And you can download either of those books absolutely free if you go to that special URL that Audible is providing to our listeners. You t- uh, go to audibletrial.com forward slash Radio and you'll get your free book. So, Prepper's Guide to Surviving the Killer Virus, something I would download right now. Um, Also, stay tuned to the end of the show because I'm going to talk about our upcoming guest this Thursday, celebrity chef Fabio Viviani, and there's an exclusive giveaway. It's an autographed copy of Fabio's new book, Fabio's American Home Kitchen. The book is not even out in the stores yet, and we have an autographed copy. And I'm going to explain what the contest rules are. It's really um, you know, a, a giveaway. Um, you're going to remember this email address. Write this down right now. Bob, not you. You're not allowed to enter. Oh, dang it. Again. <laughs> Giveaways at utlradio.com. Remember that email address. Giveaways at utlradio.com. At the end of the show, I'm going to tell you what the rules are and how you could submit an entry And you might be picked live this Thursday on air with Fabio um, to get an autographed copy of his brand new unreleased book. So pay attention. Uh, I also want to remind everybody that your feedback is so important to us, and it allows us to provide you with the best guests and information and content 
Um, so please let us know what you think about today's show and our other programs. Make sure you do so by posting on our social media pages, Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube. You can email us directly at info at utlradio.com. Uh, if you forgot all of, all of that, you can go to utlradio.com, and all of the links to social media are provided there, as well as the email address. So if you want to just remember one thing, utlradio.com, and let us know what you think. If you have any questions about any of today's topics or you want to join the discussion, uh, you want to talk about Ebola, you want to talk about Microsoft, whatever you want to talk about, call into the show, 347-855-8831. We'll bring you on live and we'll, uh, we'll get your input and opinion on some of today's topics. Well, uh, here we are, Bob. Monday again, Columbus Day. How are you feeling? We're still alive. We're still alive. Ebola has not struck uh, the greater reaches of New Jersey nor Michigan. It's closer to you, though, wasn't there a, a case yeah, out in New York? Or did that get uh, negated? Well, there was a scare last <laughs> week know? in New York Airport uh, where they thought somebody had it. And, uh, and, you know, last night, and this is honest to God, last night I dreamt that everybody in my family had been tested and somehow I woke up um, from, from, I don't know, I was on a plane, I guess, and they took a blood sample, and my my level was ninety six. And they said to me, "Sir, you have Ebola." Ah, oh, so now I'm dreaming about it. There's something not right. <laughs> that, that, I, that's that's I, I have I have different dreams. I'll admit it, Peter. Um, the uh, <laughs> Ebola is the furthest thing from my, my dreams. But it is, it's the funny thing because. You know, of all the rhetoric, and and it, and it goes both ways. It's it's uh, and and that's our lead story. We talk a little bit about Ebola today, uh, as you said. But in all the rhetoric, all of the powers that be that tell us not to be worried have failed to recognize that humans are involved in the execution of treatment and the execution of quarantine. Yeah, we make we make mistakes. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's a really it's a hard and scary thing to to really wrap your head around, and I think that majority of hospitals in the U.S. are probably you know you can give them as many suits as as you can afford to give them. I think that they're probably understaffed and unqualified to handle some sort of of massive outbreak of a virus. I think we'd be you know sure. all starting in The Walking Dead. That's what I think would, would happen. I don't think they're they're. <laughs> So um, stock stock up on those canned goods, folks. Yeah. You know, before we get into uh, our discussion about Ebola, I just want to mention a couple stories that um, I think are, are important to mention. I think the first one I'd like to talk about real quick is uh, Microsoft. So for those of you who follow Apple and are Apple fans like I am, uh, this week there's an announcement. They're probably going to be talking about the new iPads and then the release of their new operating system, Yosemite. And so while Apple's gearing up for that, Microsoft is trying to um, sort of fix what the CEO said. Did you hear about this, uh, Bob? Oh, CEO. They are in full damage control mode. Yeah, so CEO uh, Satya Nadella was involved in this women's tech conference. And, he, you know, he was <laughs> asked this question, how should women ask for a raise? Not at Microsoft, but anywhere. And his response sure. is, they shouldn't, because if you don't ask for a raise, good karma will eventually come back around. But don't ask for a raise. That was his advice. And, and the moderator was very bold, and I thought she did a really nice job. And she said to him, I disagree with you. 
And, of course, here they are now, where um, I would imagine that, that most women are going to rethink submitting their resume to Microsoft. <laughs> and I'd be curious, to, and I, I'm sure the, the numbers are already out there in their, in their uh, damage control efforts, what their comparative salaries between the, the genders are. You know, it's an interesting point. I, you know, nobody really knows what he intended to say. I mean, giving him the benefit of the doubt, which I think that there's very little benefit to give him, but maybe he intended <laughs> to say something different. I mean, we're going to see a lot of spin coming in from Microsoft. Nobody's really going to know. But I certainly would question that. And um, who knows what sort of ripple effect that might have, because if I'm a female employee of Microsoft, your question is the first thing that pops into my mind. Is the guy sitting next to me doing my same job, making more money than me? Now I want to know, how am I going to do that? I'm going to go hire a lawyer and see about a potential class action. So Absolutely, yeah. No, that's, uh, <laughs> the, I, I, I think, you know, to put, to put words in his mouth, I'm sure he's probably comes from a place inside himself where I, I get it. You know, you're supposed to, if, if you work hard, you know, good things will happen to you and, you know, you shouldn't have to ask for a raise. Well, the squeaky wheel gets the grease most of the time, so, yeah, you know, or at least replaced. <laughs> the, other, the other point there is you, it doesn't make a difference if you're in a small company, a large company like Microsoft. You have to watch what you say. You cannot go out and say things without thinking, even if you're in an interview situation where you know, it's, it's off the cuff. You've got to always be cognizant of the fact that you're representing your brand and your company. And to go out, and even if that's his personal belief, he really clearly could have said something more vanilla that was, you know, even if he didn't believe it per se, and I'm not suggesting that you lie, but you also can't go out there and start criticizing genders and races and religions simply because that's what you believe and then still expect your company to flourish. No, no. <laughs> and and now he's in a situation where it, it you know the way that social media beats up on people today the mob rules that exist um he he's he's look he could he be done yeah it's really you know? interesting i know somebody that's happy i bet you any money tim cook has been doing the happy dance for the last time <laughs> <laughs> this is the best uh, the best launch coming up that they've had in a long time. So maybe he'll mention the fact <laughs> he was, that he pays women fairly. He was so happy he decided to give away another album for free unsolicited. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that album's oh, yeah. I, 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 I looked at it a little bit, but I, I didn't really give it much. Uh, I don't have enough time to listen to music anymore. Not, not unless I'm in the car. Yep. You know, so. <laughs> you know, another thing I want to talk about. We'll see how this trips down, though. Yeah. Yeah. Taking a step away from from that news, another thing I want to mention that um, really kind of disturbing. We've been talking about over the past few weeks, fall, and you know I have mentioned things that we've done with our families, and one of the things that I like to do, I'm sure you do too, is you go to the the, the farms, you pick a pumpkin, you ride the hay ride. Oh, sure, that, absolutely. I mean, that's like quintessential fall. And uh, as a matter of fact, a few weekends ago, we went down to a farm, and um, it's it's Allstead Farms down in Chester, New Jersey. 
And um, when we pulled in, <clears throat> they had police out in the street that were directing were directing uh, traffic into the farm lot. We were there, uh, and the lot is so huge, it's grass. And there's really very little direction. They had people there pointing, telling you where to go. And, uh, you know, you, you parked half a mile away from where you were supposed to be, and that's not a problem. But there was no walking lane. There was no real designated area where you could walk safely. And, and you've got little kids with you, most people. So we remarked, and my wife and I and said, boy, this is kind of dangerous because there's really no safeguard here. And then, of course, you get up to the farm area, and a hot dog was like $15. And if you wanted to go look at the apples, you had to pay to look at them before you could pick them, which you had to pay for them too. It's like going to a, going to a major league sporting event. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we actually turned around and said, you know what, this, this is, there's other farms. This isn't one we're going to go to. And just yesterday, Allstead Farms in Chester had an incident in the parking lot uh, where a whole family was run over and, and one oh, at least one person was killed in the same parking lot that my wife and I remarked, boy, this is dangerous. So, I mean, and I'm talking this this farm, and I don't understand necessarily the draw because there are other places. There's a couple places in upstate New York that are not far from where we are where you can go pick apples and pumpkins, and they're really nicer. Um, but this farm in Chester, I mean, it, sometimes the line to get in is backed up for miles, and you're sitting there for an hour just to get into the parking lot. But... Here's a situation where perhaps greed, uh, and, and I say that based upon the, the prices of things, perhaps greed got the best of them, and now you've got a situation where at least one person was killed, other people were run over, definitely, absolutely going to be a lawsuit. So you wonder how that's going to affect them. And that happens just after 15 people in Maine in a haunted hayride end up going to the hospital, a few of them airlifted, another person died, and that story is you know, equally disturbing. My understanding of, of that is they were going up a hill, the trailer, it was being pulled <laughs> by a jeep, sort of jackknifed, mm-hmm. and it went down the hill and, and you know, crushed people and threw people, hit a tree. So, I mean, that's the scariest part of Halloween, really, when you go to these these fall farms and either greed has set in or inexperience or, you know, just no real sort of protection has been put in place, no liability thought at all. Well, and you have to believe that most of these places aren't, I don't want to say they're not used to running a business because they do run a business, but they're not in the, um, the assembly of people business. You know, they're not, a, they're not a stadium. They're not a, you know, a business whose core purpose is to effectively and safely bring these people together. You know, you'd think, though, that they would wake up and realize, I mean, especially a place like Allstead, where you're coming in with thousands and thousands of people on a weekend. You know, it's not enough to have a 15- or 16-year-old kid with a flag out in the (laughs) parking lot while he's checking his text messages at the same time trying to direct traffic. So, And that's exactly how it is around here. You know, that's a real good lesson, I think, for people to learn. And in a few weeks, right after pumpkin season is over, Matt Roloff, who um, you may recognize, he's on that show, Little People, Big World. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he runs Roloff Farms out in uh, Oregon, and he's going to be on the show, and we're going to be talking to him about uh, leadership and success and overcoming adversities. 
Uh, he's a little person, and he's overcome all these adversities, and he's been so successful in what he's done. But I, I want to mention to him this, these two incidents because he runs a very large, wonderfully um, laid-out farm, and they have these same problems because there's thousands and thousands of people. But I've not heard of one incident where somebody's been injured because when you look at at least what's on the television – they're very well organized, and it's a, a well-oiled machine. So, you know, you have to wonder well, these these places that that are setting up and bringing people in are why aren't they thinking about liability? Is it all greed? Is it like you said, inexperience? They're not used to it. But certainly, you know, you take your kids out for a nice fall day, and then you get killed. That's that's a bad day. That's well, a bad thing. Yeah, definitely will wreck your, your, your event. And they don't have a safety department. They don't have an HR department. They don't have a lot of the departments that businesses that specialize in the assembly of people have those resources. Right. And, and I, and I'm, I'm, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to make some phone calls around here because we do have quite a few haunted houses. We do have some pumpkin farms. I'm going to call around to these places and, and I hope to have something put together by next week as we get closer to Halloween to ask them if they'll volunteer information anonymously, what kind of steps they have taken to indemnify themselves and insulate themselves and make sure whether or not they're, they're messing up and not doing things correct at all. In the first place, that's a whole nother ball game, but are they thinking to go to someone on the front end, as we've always talked about with small businesses and say, Hey, you know what, what's, how can I protect my business? How can I make sure that no one gets hurt? And how can I ensure that if someone does get hurt, I'm not left holding the financial bank. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I hope we can a lot get of these some... places are fly by night. So, yeah, yeah you know, I'm looking forward to that. It'll be an interesting conversation with them. Definitely, yeah. All right, so uh, so those are just a couple things I wanted to mention, just because they they obviously have um, have just happened recently, and obvious all Steed Farms. You know, we feel really badly for all the people that were involved uh, in those accidents, and and you know, we do hope that uh, they recover both physically and emotionally from this, and it is a tragedy. For those people who are running businesses like this, you've got to wake up and you've got to make sure not only to protect yourself from being sued, I would never want to be responsible or feel responsible no, for the no. death of someone else. That's the worst part of it for me. No. So. Absolutely. No, I agree with you. Yeah. yeah, no, and that's the thing. That's going to be on your hands in your head for a very long time. Yeah, yep. All right, well, let's uh, let's move over to something that you don't want on your hands, which is the <laughs> Ebola virus. No, not at all in any way, shape, or form. And, you know, it's probably the top it, – it is one of the top topics in not only the uh, the country but the world, obviously, right now, Ebola. Uh, the family of an, Ebola, of an Ebola victim is eyeing a lawsuit. Yeah, you guessed it. The family of the first Ebola victim in the U.S. will probably take legal action against – the Dallas hospital where he died this past week, a spokesman for his fiance said Friday. Semendi Lloyd, a family friend of Thomas Eric Duncan, told reporters that his relatives have been gravely concerned that he was initially released from the hospital despite medical records that showed he had a 103-degree fever. Duncan's high temperature, which was first reported Friday by the AP, raises new questions about his care at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital. Hospital staff had also failed to note that Duncan had recently returned from the Ebola-stricken country of Liberia. Lloyd, who spoke on behalf of Duncan's fiancée, Louise Tro, during the press conference, said the hospital should have done something better than sending him home. She says that legal action is probably something that will come later, but in this moment they are in the grieving process. 
Good thing they're thinking about both things at once. The Dallas hospital has defended its care of Duncan and released two statements in the last two days about his treatment. The hospital said Friday that uh, it continues to closely review and evaluate the chain of events. Officials also said the hospital has improved its intake process to better screen for all critical indicators of the Ebola virus. Now, in a statement last Thursday, hospital wrote that Duncan was treated with the same high-level attention and care that would be given to any patient, regardless of nationality or ability to pay for care. Duncan was given an experimental drug nearly a week after he was admitted. Other patients treated in the U.S. were immediately given those experimental treatments. Duncan also did not receive the same type of blood transfusion, though, as two other Ebola-infected Americans. However, the hospital said that was because his blood type was not compatible. Now, Joseph Weeks, who is Duncan's nephew, said this week that Duncan didn't get the medicine and treatment for the disease because he's African, and that didn't, they didn't consider him as important as the other three Ebola patients. So it looks like they're trying to play a little bit of maybe race into this, um, but the biggest thing probably is what type of systemic breakdowns caused this initial release, and that's what the, the, whole, the whole lawsuit sounds like it's going to be about. What, what do you think about this? I mean, what, what is your initial feeling on this? My high-level initial feeling is we should be screening more closely via passports um, to prevent people from those countries from coming here. I don't think that the disease needs, disease needs to be here. If you went over there under the guise of treating people or helping people, God love you. I think you're great. But if you get it, you're on your own, and you, and you knew it. I know I'm, I'm pretty pretty hardcore on that. But as far as the Dallas situation goes, it doesn't matter how many people you put in place. It doesn't matter how many safeguards you put in place. People are involved, and people make mistakes. Yeah, I think that's you know I think that's that's the issue here. Like we talked about at the top of the show, a lot of these places are not capable of handling this virus. But show me somebody that is, because this is a, a <laughs> brand new. Scary. I mean, when I say brand new, the virus has been around for a long time, and the CDC, to the best of my understanding, has stored viruses like this uh, conceivably to study, uh, hopefully not to weaponize, but this is a brand <laughs> new sort of uh, situation for, for us over here in North America. We are not used to dealing with Ebola, and I think that, um, I don't know, I understand the family's frustration, but then I pose this question. This is the same guy who lied about where he was, mm-hmm. who wasn't full in the beginning. To, 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 you know, they want to say it's because he's African? No, it, it's because he lied. And the fact is, is that Ebola is a virus that we don't yet understand how to control. So the guy lied about where he was, and now they want to sue? And, you know, really, this is the kind of thing that irks me because you're going to get a lawyer that's going to take this and sue the hospital. Why don't we all work on trying to resolve the Ebola virus instead of this nonsense? I feel bad that the guy died. I feel even worse that he lied to people. And then what about the nurse in Dallas who's now being quarantined because she is suspected of having Ebola? Should she sue him and that family? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They're, if they're going to get awarded damages, hey, why not? You know, and, and the fact that if, if uh, and allegedly, I don't know, based on what the AP has reported, he allegedly told the hospital or the records say that he uh, told the hospital he would, can't come from Liberia. Uh, if he, if it's not written down, his whether or not he told them is in, in, in question in the first place. 
you know, you've got a, a witness now or a, or a, a whatever you want to call it, plaintiff who lied to get here. Yeah. How, why should we believe that he told somebody that that's where he was? Absolutely. So I feel so, bad that he died. I feel bad that anybody who contracts Ebola dies. But, you know, what I worry about is it's spread. And you either believe that the government is overhyping it or they're keeping a lot of it under wraps so they don't create mass hysteria. But in any event, it's something that needs to be addressed. And really what we should be doing is, I agree with you 100%, why allow these people, and it's not these people in the sense of a, a derogatory comment. I don't care if you're purple, black, yellow. I don't care if you're Muslim, Jewish, Christian. If you have Ebola, you should not be going into other countries and then spreading the virus. Didn't we learn from the bubonic plague? I mean, this is how things happen. <laughs> and, and that's, that's funny that you say that people, you know, funny that we're talking here on Columbus Day, per se, is, you know, people say, you know, hey, you know, other people came here, you know, and they were infectious. And uh, yeah, exactly. You look at all of, you look at, um, 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 oh, shoot, um, uh, smallpox. You look at a yeah. lot of the diseases that were spread from Europeans coming here 500 years ago and or or longer and that's exactly what happened now obviously the systems are not in place back then that we have today but it's the principle that, that there is no there is no it's it's like sex and pregnancy it really is to me because if you don't want to get pregnant don't have sex don't say i don't want to get pregnant but i'm using all this birth control that's 99.9 percent effective because Point one percent kill you, right? Yeah, and so it, yeah. who knows? But you know, it's 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 it's, it's funny because it, it definitely got politicized. It, it really didn't. I do, you know. I I would rather, and maybe I'm just like going going all Walking Dead on 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 you, but I think <laughs> I would rather see people quarantining now and this virus sort of under control instead of seeing martial law in our country because. I think if you reason out what has happened in the past and and the way that we respond to things, I think that the response to an entire town who has now contracted Ebola, and again, this is just speculative and, and I'm generalizing, but I mean, would not the response be martial law to contain those people? We see it over in Liberia where the people that have it are being held behind fences and there are armed guards. So... Why do we want to bring that in here? Why do I want to see a country founded upon freedom all of a sudden under martial law to control the spread of a virus? This is like the apocalyptic books that are out there in movies. This is real. It's here. <laughs> and what are we worried about? We're worried about suing a hospital. Well, and, and like you said, asked if whether or not the uh, the politics had been, you know, whether the government was overstating it or, or keeping the hype down. They're doing exactly that. They're saying, hey, there's nothing to worry about. And even in Texas, according to courthousenews.com, something developed out of that situation with a Dallas County judge. He, uh, yep. he this guy, Dallas Dallas County Judge Clay Clay Jenkins, praised for leadership during this whole. Uh, Ebola, Ebola situation down there, now facing criticism for exposing himself and perhaps others to the deadly disease in what's being called a political stunt. 
Jenkins made headlines when he drove the family of the Ebola patient, Thomas Earl Duncan, last week to an undisclosed location while their apartment was decontaminated and their belongings were incinerated. Jenkins did not wear a protective suit during the drive, raising concerns by parents at an elementary school where Jenkins' daughter is a student. This is how it happens. <laughs> Highland Park Independent School District officials were forced to address the concerns, stating that Jenkins asked them to pass along the assurances of public health officials, yeah, the same guys that just caught, caught, caught Ebola, that he and his family are not at risk for exposure to Ebola as a result of the, his work on the case. Jenkins, seeking re-election this past November, now his opponent, Republican Ron Natinsky, saying Jenkins seems to have little respect for how swift and deadly the disease actually is. Jenkins pulled the stunt while an American photojournalist was being treated in Wisconsin for Ebola, and he believes he got that while cleaning an infected car, just like he, this guy, did. Uh, Natinsky saying that the uh, reckless political stunt, another example of Jenkins' failed leadership. So now you can see the politicization of this. Nerves also being frayed within hours of Duncan's death when a Dallas County Sheriff's Sergeant checked into a Frisco urgent care clinic. Sergeant Michael Monig was among several Dallas County officials who entered the apartment on October 1st to serve a quarantine order on the family. Now, Monig, at this point so far, has tested negative for the disease and was released from Presbyterian Hospital on Thursday of last. Now, a county judge is not a judge in the sense of a judicial position in Texas. It's basically the head of a county commission. So a little bit mm-hmm. different. I was wondering why this guy's out there. But, but here you've got just reckless abandon, in my opinion, for political gain or apparent political gain, perceived political gain. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't think you can get away from the politics of, of this. And, um, you know, it's it's really unbelievable and frightening. But I think that in today's world, I think we have been desensitized by film and media. But, you know, you can see where some of the fantasy, some of the uh, the fiction, either in, in literature or or in in movies, you can see how that all could come true. I mean, I think that the ideas that we convey in film and in writing, similar to um, Gene Roddenberry's Communicator, which evolved into the uh, flip cell phone, you know, I mean, I think these things actually can come true. So when you see, I think, a film where they're portraying society as... um, either getting political gain from an illness because there are going to be those people that view an illness, something like Ebola, as an opportunity to profit. There are going to be those people that see it as a way to control population. Who knows? You just don't know. But this is something that I think that the entire world needs to come together on and not look for benefit to to themselves for it at all. (laughs) Never let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah, but that's that's so true, and that's what's so scary about the people in this world. You know, absolutely. And and and, and the thing is, like like you know, this 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 Jenkins, and and even healthcare workers, you know, they've they've put a lot of people at risk. And I don't want to say by being ignorant, the Jenkins on one hand, quite possibly, but he's also probably believing what he's being told. Healthcare worker goes to work every day. Trusting in the faith that this healthcare worker's been told, yeah, just maintain your processes, you'll be fine. Goes about their daily life. In fact, picks it up like this nurse in Texas did. Goes about her daily life, infects other people unwittingly. Now you, you, it's that 
Yeah, and I, that's why I said I'm careful about the word ignorance in, in, from, a, from, a, from a chosen aspect, but ignorance to the point that everything you do may not prevent this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, while we're talking, so. I just got a tweet from uh, Dove Med, and they have mm-hmm. sent over um, a pretty decent article about Ebola and uh, who gets it, what are the signs, what are the causes, and that sort of thing. If you go over to our, our Twitter page, at PJL Law, there's a link. I just retweeted it. Um, it's uh, You can look at it there. It says, hashtag Ebola can be deadly. Uh, read physician-approved info on Ebola. So go check that out. Uh, thank you to DoveMed for sending that. Well, that helps. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, you know, that's, there, there are so many facts about Ebola that... I don't want to say they get skewed, but there's a lot of social misinformation <laughs> out there sometimes, and it, yeah. when they don't really list the source, and it's you know, there there are certain facts about the disease, but my belief is just stay away. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, kind of, kind of like my daughters when they start dating, just stay away. You'll be safer. <laughs> Our real life applications, um, you know, it, you get into all this cost and everything, and insurers, whether it's Ebola or whether it's other things, definitely always on the hook for things. And an insurer has been cleared despite incidental sonic work. What is sonic work, you ask? Well, it's all about the hamburgers in St. Louis. An insurer needed or needs not to cover a sonic franchisee whose employee had inadvertently run a work-related errand before striking a pedestrian with his car, according to the Eighth Circuit report. The uh, Question is, how do you inadvertently run an errand? Well, I'll tell you. Tyler Roush hit Lloyd Miller with his car on August 3rd of 2009. Well, Tyler Roush at the time was living with his parents who own the business, the Sonic, and controlled 70% of Brash Tiger LLC, owner and operator of the Sonic Drive-In in Carrollton, Missouri. Roush himself is a 5% interest holder in Brash Tiger and was a managing member but had not worked at the business in the, for 19 years. Now, on the day of the accident, Roush's mother had asked him to go to the bank and post office for her, not for Sonic or Brash Tiger business. To say, go run this errand for me. While Roush was at the first stop, a bank employee handed him the bank deposit bags that Sonic Brash Tiger used to make cash deposits. While he was headed toward the post office, this is when he hit Miller in the crosswalk. When Miller and his wife Nancy sued Sonic, and Brash Tiger for damages. Ta-da! Well, Hudson Specialty Insurance Company claimed that Roush was not acting as anyone's agent at the time of the accident and moved for summary judgment. Now, Hudson Specialty is the insurer for Sonic and for Brash Tiger, I should say. When initial efforts to mediate the lawsuit failed, Hudson filed a declaratory judgment action. All these terms, Peter, you'll have to clarify for us. A federal judge in Kansas City, Missouri, denied Hudson the summary judgment, finding that Roush was using his car on Brash Tiger business at the time of the accident, and Hudson's policy covered the damages. However, on appeal, a three-judge panel for the Eighth Circuit cited two to one with the insurer on Tuesday, finding that, according to the ruling, on this record, the undisputed facts established that picking up the bags was a matter of convenience, not necessity, for Brash Tiger and the Sonic Drive-In. 18-page opinion states, Tyler's acceptance of the unsolicited bags from a bank employee and incidental aspect of a purely personal trip that did not give that trip a dual purpose under Missouri law for the business. So again, all these different judges, judgments, basically, they're trying to say that this guy was out on business making these errands, and so they're trying to get a hold of the uh, the insurance company. Court says no. 
why? What what what's the what's the order of events here, Peter? And and why did this not fall through because it was so incidental? Well, we've talked in the past about the fact that when you are engaged in a business activity, that would be covered under your business owner's insurance policy. But here, where the distinction that the court the court made is that this was not for the benefit of the business. There was um, deviation from your business duties. So you were not necessarily in this case, or, or um, Roush was not acting in the scope of his employment. And that's the important key term. He was not engaged in the scope of his employment when he was running a personal errand, even though it was all sort of tied together. This was a, a separate, I'm running a personal errand. And because of that, it takes you outside the scope of your employment. The the legal theory behind cases like this where an employer is responsible for the actions of his employees during the course of the business day is 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 sort of um different in each state, but it's vicarious liability. I mean that's that's the best terminology for it. It's vicarious liability. Mm, okay. You are the owner of the business, and you are vicariously liable for the actions of your employee. Certain states are going to call it different things, but that's really, if you want to look up vicarious liability, that's what you're going to find. And when you act outside the scope of your assigned duties or the scope of your employment, you are now acting for your personal benefit, personal gain, and an employer, hence through their insurance company, is not going to be tasked with covering you when you act outside the scope of what you were supposed to be doing. And that's what happened here. Summary judgment, which is just an interesting topic to note, summary judgment is essentially, the way I view it, is a trial on paper. It happens prior to a trial, and it is done through the filing of a motion, and most often it's accompanied by oral argument. And what a summary judgment motion is, is a submission to the court where you're saying to the court, judge, there are no questions of fact here, no questions of triable fact to be submitted to the jury. Therefore, you can decide this motion as a matter of law. Oh, okay. And if the judge decides in your favor, the case or that part, part of the case is over. Important note, judges decide questions of law. Juries decide questions of fact. So if there are no questions of triable ah, fact, okay. then the judge can decide questions of law. That's what summary judgment okay. is. Okay. Gotcha. So, so yeah, I mean, and, you know, it's kind of as you go through the story, had some certain things changed. There may, and, and, and Peter, you can tell us this, if, if he had gone to the bank and the post office for work, now you have a different situation. If he had gone to the bank for work and the post office not for work, it definitely swings it probably back the way that it was ruled by the appeal. Yeah, absolutely. You know, now, now, how about if he went to um, the bank and he did a business transaction and a personal transaction? Well, what they would happen? The, 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 uh, the, the, it's, um, they, they, say, they say that the aspect of purely personal trip is, is, is there, is there, a, I guess, a, a joined, I don't say joined or a um, merged possibility there. Yeah, there is. Because if you did if, do the business. Yeah, if your deviation is minimal, 
right? They're going to look at it and they're going to say it's a de minimis deviation. So in other words, you're going to the bank for the purposes of business, and while you're there, you're also depositing your paycheck. That's not going to be deemed as a deviation from your scope. That's going to be deemed as a, a de minimis or very minor deviation, and that would still get you coverage. But the fact that he went to a separate place to do a separate personal um, uh, errand, that's what triggered uh, the, the exemption from this vicarious liability. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And that's, yeah, because so, and even when you get to the summary judgment and declaration, that's just saying, hey, let's, uh, let's get down to brass tacks here. This is what it is, and, and we don't need to confuse it any further than what it is. It's just, it is or it isn't, you decide. Right, right. Okay, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. So there you go. Now, and so that makes a big difference. If you're out, you know, myself being a small business owner, I do a lot of merge traveling <laughs> where I'll run to the bank for the business and then I'll run to the grocery store for myself. And so that's, um, that's an interesting concept that I have to remember myself and other people as well. But you know what? What's the fallback position for small business owners? If you've got business liability insurance that's going to cover you in the course mm-hmm. or your business, what happens when you are outside the scope of your business? What protects you? And if you're in a car, that's your personal driving insurance. Right, okay. So you would still have coverage through your auto insurance. And that's why it's so important, especially, you. I mean, the small business aspect of this should not be overlooked. It's really important because insurance companies are in the business of collecting premiums and denying claims. And that's a simple fact. So you go, you get insurance. Do you think they want to pay you out? They want to take your premium. (laughs) Took a minute to sink in me for a second. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's what they do. They don't want to pay you out. They're going to they're going to take uh, they're betting. They're betting on you, which is why they look at your driving record. Why people who are more experienced drivers, but not too old, because then there's a risk. Not too young because there's a risk, but that that sweet spot of driver, you'll get the lowest premiums because you're deemed to be less of a risk. The young and the old people with a bad driving record, well, you're going to be hit with higher premiums because they bet on you. They bet that you're not going to or that you are going to get into an accident. So making sure that your personal insurance, especially if you're a small business owner, is at proper levels – Quick story, there was a, um, a client involved in a car accident who only had $25,000 insurance limits because, you know, it's acceptable in the state. They were trying, they were, you know, in their, in their early 30s trying to save money. So they skimped on insurance coverage and they took a $25,000 policy. They get into an accident and um, the injuries were to the other vehicle driver's arm and it required surgery. The damages exceeded the policy limit, so the damages were around $150,000, but their insurance only covered $25,000, and the rest of it was their responsibility personally. So small business owners and just everyday people, you've got to understand what your limits mean with respect to your auto insurance policy. Think about what you can afford, and what the risk is if you cause an accident or are even involved in an accident where somebody's going to be hurt. Talk to your broker. Talk to a lawyer. But think about that. It's really serious. 
Actually, you know, this kind of brings up a question when you start rolling in company vehicles, Peter. If this whole situation with the Sonic, if this this, uh, this fellow, uh, Roush, had been driving a company vehicle and but running a personal errand, how does that fall into play? Or is it the well, intent or the, the activity, not the, the vehicle? Well, in New York and New Jersey, your coverage doesn't mm-hmm. go with the car. Your coverage goes with the driver. So if you okay. have your own automobile insurance coverage, the fact that you're driving another covered vehicle doesn't really come into play because that vehicle, that would be a commercial policy. They would deny coverage, and then it would then trigger your, your, your personal auto okay. policy. Okay. And the fact is that, is that you're, you're the insured driver, not the insured vehicle. You're the insured driver. Mm. To make things okay. more complicated. That makes sense. Yeah. But here you want to get more complicated, and we can talk about this at another, another time. <laughs> but it's Monday, and I might as well confuse everybody to the, the most extent possible, right, just in case we all contract the bullet. Sure. Um, if you are renting a vehicle, you're renting a car. Mm. And you don't take their rental supplemental insurance, or you do. Let's go with with you don't take it first, and you're in an accident. Your insurance is on the hook. Is your insurance company going to readily pay, or are they going to say, no, you should have taken that insurance from them? You know, that, that can be tricky, but more often than not, your insurance will cover it to a certain extent. What if you take the policy you take that policy offered by the rental car company. Well, what happens is you've got a policy of insurance that is your own. The rental car company mm-hmm. gives you the policy of insurance that you purchase. And mm-hmm. when you get into an accident, your insurance company says, no, we're not going to pay because you have other insurance. The insurance company that you just hired through the rental or you purchased <laughs> through the rental agency is going to say, no, because there's a language in the contract that says your insurance is um, sort of first hit, then ours. First hit, first yeah, sure. Yeah, so that's super complicated stuff when you get into rental cars and liability and insurance and that sort of thing. But the key to remember here with respect to Sonic is those commercials with the two guys sitting in the car are stupid. And they should rethink their marketing <laughs> strategy. I can't stay watching them. And and the second thing is, you know, if you're within the scope of your employment doing something, you're covered. If you're outside the scope, even a, a deviation like this, you need to make sure that you have your own automobile coverage. That's my there you go. That's my rant. The, the golden that. rule, yeah. If you're, it's a, a way to kind of a, a simple way to look at it. If you're in the scope, you're all right. But once you deviate, you're gonna have issues. You better be covered. Um, the government trying to make it more difficult, maybe, or trying to make it more right. We don't know. Well, voter ID laws in two states have been made toothless, so the courts are saying you're making it too difficult. The Supreme Court kept Wisconsin from enforcing a voter ID law for the upcoming election, and that may because it may discriminate against minorities, according to them. And a federal judge threw out a similar law in Texas. The Supreme Court will now consider whether to grant a petition for certain. Uh, I should have looked this word up. Say that, Peter. Certiori. Certiori, (laughs) which (laughs) determines the continued fate of a district court permanent injunction. In Corpus Christi, Texas, meanwhile, U.S. District Judge Nelva Gonzalez-Ramos Ramos struck down what would have been the nation's most strict voter ID law. 
She said the draconian voting requirements imposed by SB 14 will disproportionately impact low-income Texans because they are less likely to own or need one of the seven qualified IDs to navigate their lives. The 143-page ruling states, Ramos had conducted a two-week trial on the matter last month, hearing evidence of only two instances of in-person voter fraud among more than 62 million voters cast in all Texas elections during the preceding 14 years. Texas's history of discrimination meant, though, that it did have to get a Justice Department approval for SB 14 under the Voting Rights Act. Texas submitted its request in July of 2011. Now, also a three-judge panel in Washington described that bill, SB 14, as the most stringent in the country and ruled against Texas in August of 2012. Everything is going against SB 14. (laughs) Persuaded by the government study showing black and Latino registered voters were almost twice as likely as white registered voters not to have photo ID. Before the Supreme Court could consider Texas's appeal, though, it threw out the preclearance requirements of the Voting Rights Act with its ruling in Shelby County versus Holder, which kind of basically said, well, you just asked us for everything and we've already said no. So this led to the Supreme Court vacating the panel's preclearance denial of SB 14 and the panel dismissed the case on remand. It's it's not going to happen. The government doesn't want it to happen uh, at the federal level. But which the biggest question, I thought that the voter, I guess, Voting was supposed to be left up to the states. Seems like the federal government's got a um, big chip in this game, though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and you kind of hate to see that in a way because uh, voting is meant to be a state-run, organized sort of institution and right. Um, you know, and it, it starts to make you a little nervous if you believe at all that the government has any sort of um, you know bigger plan. Uh, and I know that there are a lot of people out there that, you know, in today's day think that way. So do you want the federal government involved in something like this? I would say no. And then the next question is, <clears throat> how important do you think these voter ID laws are to begin with? I mean, what is the fear? And you'd have to think the fear is that people who are not uh, citizens or not qualified to vote are being kept uh, or are, are voting, and you don't want that. I understand that. But, I mean, what more? I mean, it already takes like two months to get your driver's license, and you've got to sift through all kinds of paper <laughs> to, to meet the Homeland Security requirements. What do you think about, Bob? What do you think about this idea of, of, of imposing additional requirements before you can vote? Well, it's, 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 it's evident in Ramos's opinion that she only found the two instances of in-person voter fraud among the 62 million votes cast in Texas elections during the preceding 14 years. As she stated, it's not without precedent. If you look back at Chicago and, and, and back in the days, there was all sorts of fraud. It's been well documented. I'm sure there's even more cases that are even documented to this day. I didn't know prior to this bubbling to the top that so many people had issue proving who they were. Yeah, right. I really didn't. I was ignorant to it. And to, to go back to the other, ignorant dumb this time, it, I didn't know it was such a, such an issue. And so, as it, it, like with most things, everybody treats the symptom instead of treating the issue. You know, maybe what what are these people running? How do they get driver's licenses? How do they, so do we have that many people driving around without licenses? Uh, do we not have 
um, ways to cash checks. I mean, how do you get your check cash, Peter? You probably know your banker. You probably don't ask for ID anymore. But eventually, right. it's in order for you to get a bank account. You know, and now that's and that leans toward the financial aspect. A lot of these people may not have banks, so they don't require or they don't have enough money, so they don't require banking. I was just blown away by the 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 the, the claim. And I say claim just because that's everything that's boiled down to the claim that so many people don't have ID on them. And that's, to me, mind boggling in itself. I mean, I, I, I live in such a rural area. You walk in, they pretty much know you, but you still have to show your ID to show who you are and that you live there. So I, I have no issue with it, but I understand if that's a big enough problem, then we need to fix the problem before we try to fix the symptom. Yeah, and that's exactly what it is. It's a symptom because where where are these people coming from that don't have a bank account and they don't right. have ID? You know, we see we, – we do a lot of construction litigation, and unfortunately in the course of construction litigation, you see a lot of smaller or mid-sized con- contractors. And I'm talking about contracting companies, not, you know, the individual guy that comes to your house and does work. They will rely upon – uh, undocumented workers to get a lot of the work done. You know, you, you hear the stories and the jokes about, I'm going to go down to Lowe's or Home Depot on a Saturday morning and pick up a crew of guys. Well, this is reality, and those people don't have. <laughs> the joke right? is true. Yeah, yeah, they don't have bank accounts. They take their checks, if they get checks, and it's not cash, and they go to a check cashing place. And the you know regulations concerning check cashing places are there, but people don't always follow them. So the bigger problem is regulation of immigration, regulation of check cashing, regulation of those sorts of behaviors, those sorts of issues. That fixes the problem of well, people are, and they're not properly either uh, documented or they're they're illegal or what have you. But that's the bigger problem. You you need to address yeah, no, immigration absolutely. and immigration reform if that's the way we're going to go. But immigration reform has been on the table for years and no movement. And the, and the interesting thing, too, about the statement in, in Ramos's opinion was that of the 62 million, million votes cast, only two instances of voter fraud had occurred. That's what you found. Prove to me that the other 61 million, 999,998 Votes are legitimate. Yeah. Yep. Well, look, look back during the fishman. look at the the Bush election and and the issues down in Florida oh, when when, yeah, Florida, when sure. W was running right. So I mean mm-hmm. I, I think that, I don't know I think it's it's a far reaching problem. I think that this is a distraction looking at something like this. I I understand having some sort of regulatory body where you can you know have some voter. Uh, confidence, you know that the person voting is who they are. I believe that that's important to do, but I think that we're missing the bigger picture like you identified. Well, that's the, uh, you start to look at the states controlling voting as well. And and I think the feds get involved if they think that uh, voting rights are being somehow infringed. And now, now you've got to look at why the feds involved. And they think there's Texas is their, their law is so strict that it's going to affect things. And that's, supposedly their overreaching factor. And a lot of people Mm -hmm. get bent, like you said, because, hey, you know what, this is the state's problem, not your problem. But, you know, hey, it used to be a problem in in the 60s and the the feds had to fix it. So that's that's where this, I don't know what the voting acts right was, what year was, 64, 68. um, And and that's a lot of what is 
being used for, I guess I would say a precedent, but um, uh, the guidelines for these new laws. So, yeah, <laughs> just 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 tell us who you are. It's not that hard, I would think. But hey, you'd think with Homeland Security that it'd be more involved in making sure we knew who everyone was. But hey, well, you know what? It's the same thing that I talked about <laughs> last week. You'll take, um, you know, a, a, a guy in a wheelchair and screen him and strip search him at the airport, <laughs> but you won't take the guy that looks like he might be a problem because you're afraid of, of racially profiling him. You know, let's yeah. strip down a six-year-old. You know, my, my middle guy has a pacemaker, and so we belong to a lot of these groups that have uh, families with kids that have pacemakers. And mm-hmm. I, I, this one friend, she's a, an attorney and her husband's an attorney, uh, and they've got a kid with a pacemaker, and every time they fly out anywhere, this kid is always, like, strip-searched. So, I mean, really, I, I understand the shoe bomber where you might be planting an explosive device in a shoe, but who is going to plant an explosive device in a child, and it just doesn't seem – it seems like that's an easy target. Let's go screen that person. Let's go strip-search that person, but let's not look at the people who might actually pose a threat. So you have to sure. wonder, Homeland Security, I mean, I'm criticizing I'm not involved in it. Maybe they're doing the best that, that they possibly can, but I think there's room for improvement across the board. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and it no longer common sense doesn't prevail where if it walks like a duck, it talks like a duck, it's a duck. That's not right. necessarily the case anymore. Right. <laughs> uh, moving on to uh, some other issues that we've seen in the legal world in the last week. Some, you know, I've always said if you don't want to defend in court, don't put it in writing. Well, post-its, but in a different light, post-its and privilege collide in a suit against Google. San Francisco, according to Law.com, at first the handwritten notes seemed like a plaintiff lawyer's dream to destroy all email, to close your eyes to existing IP and risks of litigation written on post-its. Well, a handful of trial, trial lawyers who have reviewed the notes said they'd have a field day putting them in front of a jury. But it's unclear what role, if any, those little zingers will play in an intellectual property property brawl between Google Incorporated and a small London-based company. Well, the notes scrawled on post-its were accidentally left behind in files returned to VSL Communications in 2010 after a deal between the companies fizzled. Now, VSL executives say they, they these notes proved that the tech giant Google was plotting to steal VSL's video reduction technology during acquisition talks. The notes had been the centerpiece of two lawsuits filed against Google in August. But VSL lawyers on Wednesday reframed their patent infringement claims. Now all the references of the post-its are conspicuously absent, presuming, you know, because of the, Ill- the issues related to work product and att- uh, attorney-client privilege. A lot of different angles here. Constance Nash, VSL's president and founding partner, said Google's lawyers threatened VSL's team with sanctions for quoting the notes. Neither side's attorneys would comment, but lawyers not involved in the case said there's a risk that the post-its wouldn't be admissible as evidence. Kristen Dumont, an IP lawyer, called to called the use of the post-its a shameful disclosure of material that clearly documents advice between lawyers or between lawyers and Google executives. Now, she says within two lines, it's very clear that someone's documenting a conversation with an attorney, she says, and all attorneys are trained that basically from the time they're baby lawyers, the second this looks like privileged communications, you are supposed to stop reading. And she also says that they should be disqualified from running the case, the lawyers themselves. In 2010, Google showed an interest in the VSL patent. 
uh, basically uh, for streaming video. The two companies signed a non-disclosure agreement and began licensing and acquisition talks that April. BSL executives provided Google with their patents, patent applications, and documents that compared their product with the current market standard, and after eight months, everything fell apart. Well, BSL received the documents back in to, uh, from Google in December of 2010. That's when they found everything littered with Post-its that they say proved Google intended to steal their property. Wow, oh, wow. I mean, this, thing, this is a large case that delves into a lot of different things. But the biggest overriding factor here is we, is we kind of pull away from all of the input on the story is whether or not these written notes qualify as attorney-client privilege or does it count as work product doctrine, which are writings that reflect an attorney's on-the-job impressions. Peter, where does it stand? What's going to happen here? Well, I, I don't and think you look out for. Yeah, I don't think that the notes themselves are going to be admissible because, um, while yes, while the the rules say you shouldn't read privileged communications, stop, turn it back. Yeah, everybody reads them. You know, if you get something that that comes in in a file, you're looking at it. Now, can you act on it? Is the important question. And if you can reasonably believe, or a reasonable person believes that those notes were left inadvertently in the file, but that they do uh, show communication between either the client and the attorney, which is the attorney-client privilege, which is something that's not discoverable, it's not admissible, um, you can't talk about it at trial or anywhere else throughout the lawsuit, and then work product, which is the attorney's own impressions and strategy, um, those two things are protected sort of information and materials. These notes, whether they're deemed to be communication between the attorney and the client, or they're deemed to be impressions of the attorney and therefore work product, I think are that's not the most important distinction. I think the important distinction mm-hmm. here is that clearly those notes are protected under one or the other privilege, and therefore they would not be admissible. I would have, I, I would bet everything I have on the fact that a judge is not going to allow, well, it's not much, but I'm still betting it. Um, they're not going to allow these post-its in as admissible evidence. They're not because anybody with half a brain can see that these are notes meant to be protected. Now, what do you do in a situation if you're a lawyer, if you're a business owner? You know, it doesn't make a difference what you are. Why did these notes get missed? That's the real question here. You have an obligation to yourself, to your client, to the people that you are working for as an attorney to make sure that if you're sending over documents, you don't disclose something that they should not see. And this isn't destruction of documents or we're committing fraud by not um, giving certain information up. This is a legal right. This is a protection afforded to an attorney and a client. So how do you and, and that's that's a good point because one of the things I look at on this is the difference between you know if they were if the documents were stolen and you know DSL got a hold of Google's notes somehow by, by a devious method and said now we can prepare ourselves now we know versus what I would think would fall under some form of plain view doctrine we willingly gave these to you stupidly but willingly 
Yeah, but you know, the question's going to be, does that uh, invalidate the privilege? And the answer to that should be uh-huh. no. Because, yes, you okay, were stupid. Okay. You know what, though? There's still information <laughs> that you can take from that. You know, there have been times where um, I've been involved in cases where another attorney has done something similar. And during the course of a deposition, it's not outwardly said, and look at this post-it note that you left in the file. Let's talk about that. But there are questions <laughs> around the accidentally disclosed information that don't violate any ethical rules. It's questions about, you know, did you ever have any discussions with anyone in the office about this, this, and this? And, you know, most of the time they end up, the attorneys will end up objecting to that because you're seeking information that's protected by the attorney-client privilege. But it it Mm, gives you some insight into it. Um, But I don't think that it's super helpful. I think here that it's out there, they can see what it is, but they're not going to be able to use it. It's going to be inadmissible. And this just highlights the fact that even bigger companies who are dealing with you know major players in the world of business, you have to proofread, you have to double check, you have to make sure you're aware of what you are sending out. And that, not, not only in something like this, but in email, when we've done some seminars in the past where we talk about the importance of proofing your email, you know, email is, is such an accepted form of uh, sort of lowbrow communication, if you will. You don't need to use formalized mm-hmm. punctuation. And so a lot of people in business, they get lazy and they'll send out an email not realizing that it contains information that's protected, that they should not disclose. Now, with, with privilege... The only person that can waive the privilege is the person that holds the privilege. So if a business owner disclosed information to a competitor, is that protected by the privilege, even if the communication was between the business owner and the attorney? So take this story and say that the business owner disclosed a file to a competitor, to a vendor, and in that file it had post-it notes documenting communication between him and the attorney. But the business owner is the one that gives out this information. Is there an argument that the business owner waived his privilege by disseminating this information? That's mm-hmm. a strong argument. Yeah. Not, I think it boils down to what you said earlier, though. you just got to be careful. You've got to pay attention, especially if you were the lawyer's. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, post-it notes are great. I love them, but um, they're easy to miss. They're stuck on the middle of a page, and as you're thumbing through and mm-hmm. looking at them, you might miss it. So, you know, ease, convenience, functionality, post-it notes are great, but you've got to be aware <laughs> of those things. Really, I mean, this is... You've got to be okay to hang your career by one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's exactly that's, that's stuck to it. <laughs> You know, we've talked about, um, you know, you talk about being careful with what you put out there. We've talked about it in the past, these review sites that, you know, it's, it's, it's everyone's got an opinion, but when does the opinion become something you need to defend? Beverly Hills dentist suing a couple for libel over a scathing Yelp review that branded him a butcher and a crook. A dentist suing a man and a woman for posting a negative review of his business on Yelp. 
Elise Gobert and her then-husband, Jeff Cohen, branded Dr. Parza Zeta a butcher and a crook in the 357-word review of the Beverly Hills Surgeon. Gobert, a professional model, was told she needed $30,000 of surgery to align her jaw bones if she wanted to eliminate her persistent neck pain. But when she emerged, she claimed that she... (laughs) had bigger teeth than any man around me. Infuriated, her husband took to the reviewing site, where millions of people give stores, restaurants, bars, and cafes and a star rating, plus a few comments. Now, four years later, the pair are being sued for libel, despite removing the review. However, it comes just weeks after Governor Jerry Brown sanctioned the Yelp Law, or Assembly Bill 2365, which bans companies from fining customers for online reviews. Dr. Zeta insists the review contained lies and false allegations. It was nothing other than, folks, this is our experience, watch out, Cullen told ABC7. The last thing I need in my life is to have to go to court over something as ridiculous as this. Goldberg is is enraged that she claims she had nothing to do with the review, and she's being sued as well. I mean, I guess my first thought, if you're getting $30,000 worth of surgery and you're not happy, I don't think the Internet's the place to solve this. You know, it's really tricky for me because I think a lot of people in today's day and age rely upon reviews. You look at reviews of hotels. You look at reviews of products on, you know, Amazon.com. I do it all the time now. Yeah. Absolutely. Likewise, yeah. It gives so me. I, I take it with a grain of salt sometimes, especially the bad ones, unless they're specific to a functionality defect. Right. And you know what? I think that for the most part, people can determine whether or not this is a review that's posted by the actual manufacturer or the hotel itself. You know, <laughs> like this is the greatest hotel ever. We we would stay here all the time. That sort of thing. But I think that and you have to uh, watch out for that. That happens. It does happen, and that, believe it or not, is a violation of FTC regulations concerning posting of uh, of reviews and and um, feedback from people. That if you if you fake that, that's a problem. But I think that um, it's helpful to an extent that you know we can rely upon um, people's reviews and information. So what do you do? Do you now tell people they cannot talk? on Yelp. They can't put their opinions. But again, now it's up to this doctor in this case to prove that these accusations were false. And how do you prove somebody's opinions were false? Um, And and that's where I think we're going to see a lot of litigation coming up in the near future about this issue. What's your opinion? What's an explanation of your experience versus what are you so angry about that you're going to post these comments that are not true? Well, that's the, you know that's a good point because yeah the 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 truthfulness of the comments versus an opinion of the comment. I mean, you know, this is what I think, not versus what it actually is. That I think does that get probably more people in trouble than anything? It does, and you know there are tons of websites like um, complaints dot com and pissedconsumer dot com where it's meant to be a great <laughs> board. You know, you look at these okay. things; and it's not really meant to be helpful. It's like you know. Uh, Benny James at the bank gave me a dirty look on the day, and I'm really upset, and I think that he should be fired. That's opinion, but is it really opinion? What What's going on there? Um, there's a lot of room for interpretation, but you know what this is going to do is it's going to force these issues into the realm of litigation, and now you're going to have a jury decide were the comments made based upon 
you know, let's look at the pictures. Let's see, did he really screw this girl's face up, and, and did he really not do what he said? You're going to have a jury looking at these things and determining whether or not it's opinion, if it's fact. It's going to be very interesting from a legal standpoint, but I think that people posting should just be cognizant of the fact that if you're going to post something, don't do it out of spite. You know how uh, there's been a lot of, of information in the news lately about revenge porn, where you know you're mad at no. somebody, you're an ex girlfriend, and and you've got this uh, you know pornographic image of her, and now you're going to post it online. It's illegal in, in in the UK. It's it's illegal in most states here. It's the same thing. Are you going to post a revenge review simply because you're angry at something that happened? You're going to get yourself you know, in trouble at some point. So as long as the reviews are honest and an honest explanation of your experience, I think that's okay. When you start getting into the realm sure. of fantasy, you're going to have a problem. <laughs> I like say, I'm, I'm a believer in the 24-hour rule, and whatever I put down here, I better be able to defend. Yeah, I agree. That's a good, good strategy <laughs> for sure. Speaking of defensive cops, man, I'll tell you what. There's one thing I wouldn't want to be today, Peter, is a cop. Yeah. Yeah. In any way, shape, or form, they're they're, I mean, good or bad, they're they're really getting beat up on, and and you know, unfortunately, there are both types. Now, in New Jersey, a drunken man's death may leave the police liable. New Jersey state troopers must face claims they suffocated a drunk driver found stopped in the middle of the highway. A federal judge ruled after NJ state trooper Jason Sawinski spotted a white sedan stopped in the minute in the median or excuse me, in the middle of a northbound lane on I-95 at 11 o'clock in the evening, he awoke the driver and had him move the car to the shoulder. Awful nice of him. Well, the trooper said the driver, Robert John Tweet, says his license was suspended. Failed sobriety test as well. Footage from a patrol car video shows the six foot two, 250-pound individual struggling to break free of Sawinski and his backup, troopers Joshua Coppola and Ian Roseberg, for about 90 seconds until they finally push him over the guardrail to expose his arms and handcuff him. Probably just lean and fold him over, I guess. Not say push him over, but just lean him over, probably. Uh, Coppola, upon seeing blood on his hands and the individual's face, called for an ambulance. Rosenberg then put Tweet face down on the ground, put his knee between the man's shoulder blades, and pushed down on his shoulders with his hands as Coppola held Tweet's legs. Now, there's no footage of what happened next because the fellow's car is in the way. Tweet's family said in a court... That the footage reveals the driver yelling, you guys are killing me. Now, Rosenberg and Copley allegedly kept their hold on Tweet for several minutes, however, until he went still and silent. This is very reminiscent of what happened in New York on the street, it sounds like. Though the family says Tweet had stopped breathing, the troopers say he was drifting in and out of consciousness as they propped him up against the guardrail. They detected a pulse and saw his chest rising and falling. Family says Coppola waited nearly 10 minutes to put an oxygen mask on him. When paramedics finally arrived, they saw Tweet was not breathing and had a bluish tinge to the area around his lips, according to a deposition. Now, he then went into cardiac arrest on the way to the hospital and died. Autopsy results gave the cause of death as cardiorespiratory arrest following physical restraint and struggle while under the influence of alcohol and a prescription muscle relaxer with contributory causes of asthma, stenosis of larynx, and obesity. Now, his wife, Ruth, tweet, wrongful, she had a wrongful death action claim, naming his defendants the troopers, the state of New Jersey, and its state police, 
alleging the trio caused him to die of positional asphyxiation and deliberately failed to tell paramedics how he had been held down. Now, this is going to fall into um, the sovereign immunity clause, I'm sure, to a point, but also to what degree are the, the officers responsible. Do you remember this when this happened? This is a few years back. Yeah, yeah I do remember this one. And, uh, and the way this has played out now is obviously they sued the state of New Jersey and they sued the troopers as well as, as some others. And sued everybody. Uh, yeah, what's happened here is this, the state was, was granted uh, their motion for summary judgment. So the state says we should be out of this because we have qualified immunity. We didn't do anything wrong. And the court granted mm-hmm. their, portion, their, their motion. So the state's out, but the troopers are in, and the allegations that are really um, in the complaint are 1983 violations. And in 1983, uh, it's, it's really uh, a, a shortened version it's really 28 U.S.C. 1983, and these are claims uh, against somebody acting under the color of state law where they deprive somebody of a federal constitutional or statutory right. So that's what a 1983 claim is. Um, but the plaintiff here alleges excessive force. He alleges uh, intentional withholding of medical care. And while there's not a video of this, there is an audio portion of the dash cam recording. And the plaintiffs argue that you can hear him yelling, stop, stop, you guys are killing me. So that's going to to come into play. Um, I think this is one, if I was the troopers, I'd be a little nervous about because you have to look (laughs) at whether or not you acted reasonably under the circumstances. And yes, you've got to deal with the immunities because the, the police get a head start, if you will. Uh, they've got these protections in place, and they're going to have to show that they acted uh, beyond the scope of what was normal, what, what should have been expected. But you've got a guy who, even if he is deemed to be uh, slightly resisting, you've got to have to look at his physical stature and appearance. Does he pose a threat? Was there a reason to do what they did? And you know, should they have stopped restraining at some point did they actually kill him and i think that if it's um it's something where a jury can see through circumstantial evidence and through the recordings and they believe that the police way overstepped their bounds then they could be held responsible for this and that's where you know you get into the situations where why would you want to be a cop these days you're you're put out there on the street every day and you're you're confronting individuals that are going to resist. And there's been, you know, obviously throughout history, plenty of plenty of cases. But now you've got to really, really pay attention to how far you go. And, and not that you shouldn't have prior to, but everyone's watching now. Yeah, it's no longer your word against theirs. Ever they've got between dashboard cams or or somebody's driving along filming it. You've got to be. You've got to really almost. You have to have. It's, I imagine it, it's got to be incredibly difficult for an officer to go from um, well, protective aggressiveness to pulling back and being docile again. You know, I talked to um, an officer in, in our local community not too long ago about incidents like this. And the discussion we were having was basically, you know, what is the training like at this stage of, of, of society? What sort of training do police officers go through with respect to handling uh, relatively low-level crimes like traffic stops and 
Um, we were talking about it because I guess it was it was around three, four weeks ago. There was an incident, I think it was in Georgia, where a trooper pulled a guy over. He pulled him to the gas station, and he asked the guy mm-hmm. to get his license. And so as the guy leans over to get his license, the trooper thought that he was moving too quickly or aggressively, and he shot him like six times. And and as the guy's laying on the ground saying, stop, stop, you told me to get my license, you know, that guy was arrested and, and faced prosecution, and, um, you know, that that's a, a problem. But playing devil's advocate for a minute, what if the guy really did believe, even though he was mistaken, quite clearly, what if he really did believe or perceive that he was being threatened and his uh, his his, you know, flight or fight reflex or response kicked in? And he's like, all right, I've got a family to protect myself from what I perceive to be a threat. So where does, the, does that get sort of, of, of corrected? And I think that that goes back sure. to what training. So getting back to my discussion training with the yeah. officer, yeah, he says that we in this area, um, in, in northern New Jersey, we spend more time on more military training than we do on dealing with small local domestic stops, knowing when someone's going to be a threat and not. And instead, we're working on more military-type stuff, you know, a lot of shooting with with more military-style weaponry. So wh- why they're doing that, I don't know. Um, you know. Maybe they're preparing for the, uh, the zombie apocalypse. I don't <laughs> know. But, you know, I think that, that that's a failure of the system to properly train police officers to protect the people that they're meant to protect. That 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 I, shooting of that guy in Georgia, wherever it was, where he went for his license, that was just clearly wrong. And here in this case, it sounds like it was wrong, too, although I'm not as certain as I am in the other case. No, yeah, he just – he failed to control the individual, and that's true. He never should have – when he pulled him over, I mean, I actually, I don't know if you, we've ever discussed this, but I've been through the police academy. Um, back in a past life, I wanted to be a police officer. Well, I've changed my mind. Huh? And <laughs> it, it happened a while ago. And that was one of the things that was very, very basic in your, in your instruction was you need to make sure you have that individual, not necessarily physically under control, but under your control of your commands. Like you know, he's, if he's out of the vehicle already, Hey, can you step over here? You know, now you want to get him away from his vehicle. And we can Monday morning quarterback it all we want. You're not there on the spot. And it, it, you, you, I'm like I say, you'd like to think it becomes automatic, but people forget things. Again, we go back to the old situation. Humans are involved. Mistakes are going to be made. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so, but it, and it, like, it really makes me remind me of the Washington. Go ahead. I'm sorry. In cases like this, you have to wonder. Was the mistake reasonable, or did they overextend themselves? Did they overexert themselves? Sure. Is it similar to that football, that the high school, you know, star quarterback football mentality that we've talked about in the past? Um, you know, where where you're untouchable. Now you have a badge and a gun. Are you untouchable? And you're going to make sure that this person, <laughs> you know, feels your power. You know, that's where we have to look at this. And clearly, this case is going to go to a jury, and they're going to have to look at these things and determine. Yeah, I know absolutely. And <laughs> in, 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 in the, the broader scope of things, my first thought is, how did you know, if you'd just done what you were told at the stop, <laughs> this wouldn't have happened. Yeah, I mean, I hate to look at it like that. And the Washington Post, uh, uh, Sunil Duda, uh, professor of Homeland Security at Colorado Tech University, who used to be an officer as well, 
wrote a post, or excuse me, wrote a column back when around the time the Ferguson shooting had happened, and it was entitled, I'm a cop. If you don't want to get hurt, don't challenge me. Yeah. It was yeah. Very, very interesting to see the other side. I mean, it was it was written not so much as a power trip article, but it was, you know what? I've got a family to go to. You know, I'm I'm on edge. I don't know what you're going to do as well. So the more unpredictable you are, the more unpredictable I'm going to be. But it's it's difficult to say that you know these guys are supposed to be professionals and they shouldn't do that. But again, humans are involved. Mistakes get made. You know, it's really interesting. Um, I think, by the way, Bob. I think because we're running real long today, I think we're going to oh, we uh, push the rest of the stories to next time. But I want to just comment on sure. something. We had Rick Garrity on last week, professional photographer, and it was a really, really great show, and he gave a lot of advice. But one of the things that we talked about was your ability to take photographs or video of a police stop. And I've done a video. If you go to our YouTube channel, you can see I've done a video about that, and I talk about a uh, recent decision that really sort of clarifies your rights to take a picture at a traffic stop. And the law is this. You are permitted, as long as you are not obstructing justice or otherwise interfering with the stop or investigation, you are free to take pictures of the police. Now, that's what the law is. But let's talk right. about reason. And this is what I tell a lot of photographers, because we do have a lot of uh, photography clients. I tell them this, unless the value of your image is going to justify you being arrested, you being detained, don't take it. Because while you're legally entitled to take that photograph, you know that a police officer trying to control a scene is going to be upset with you taking pictures. And so you're going to be detained or arrested, even though you can prove (laughs) your rights. Unless you want to spend the next few days and a lot of money on a lawyer proving your point simply to make the point that I can take a picture of whatever I want, why bother? Why put yourself in that situation? And that goes back to the article that you're just mentioning. If you don't want problems, just comply. Now, obviously, there are those people, those police officers that do things that uh, shock the conscious and are so beyond what we should be doing in, in you know police society. We should not be treating people like that. That's a different story. But... For the most part, when I used to defend the police officers or the departments, for the most part, they arose, these claims arose because the person being stopped did not comply. You don't have to like the police officer. You don't have to like the rules. You don't have to like the law. But you know what? Just comply. What's the point of fighting if you have your rights later? <laughs> exactly. People forget that there's you get you're going to get arrested if, if if what you're doing is wrong. You're going to get arrested. The time to, to to challenge the law is he's not the guy that's going to make the decision. He's just enforcing the law. <laughs> yes, and if you don't like something that happened when you're all done, then you can file a civil rights lawsuit. Then you can go and you can launch um, uh, an internal affairs investigation, or you can file a complaint. That's the time to do it. It is not the time to do it at the stop. You will make things worse for yourself. So <laughs> sit there, bite your tongue, take it, and then go do something about it. But it's not worth yeah. getting you arrested. That's just crazy. So Not generally. <laughs> right. 
We're going to hold off on uh, some of the other stories, but we're going to talk about them next week because I think they're interesting. We've got the thousands of venomous spiders force a family from their home. Yeah. We got the dance mom, everybody that saw that god awful reality show. Um, dance mom host Abby Lee Miller is being sued. And then a follow up we've got the frozen chicken thief and what happened to him. Remember the frozen chicken thief guy? Yes. <laughs> so we'll talk about that on Monday. But I just want to mention a couple things. This Thursday, we've got celebrity chef Fabio Viviani on the show. He's going to be on for the full hour. He is um, uh, uh, all over the place. You go to Bed Bath & Beyond, you can buy his pots and pans. You go to the bookstore, you can buy his books. He was a Top Chef contestant. He was voted fan favorite on uh, Bravo's Top Chef. He's competed in Top Chef All-Stars. He is a restaurateur. He is on QVC selling kitchen appliances and products. Um, he's a, a recurring guest on the Hallmark Channel. And he's got this brand new book coming out. Um, and and it's we're very fortunate. We have a, an autographed copy of this book. It's not even out in the stores yet. So this Thursday, while we're going to be talking to Fabio about his success and what we can learn um, from him, what examples we can take, Fabio is is obviously Italian. He came here, um, and he was not just handed a golden ticket. He worked really hard for, for where he is right now. We're going to talk about that. But if you want to get a copy, an autographed copy of Fabio's brand-new cookbook, here's what you have to do. This is the, the, the um, message that I gave you at the beginning of the show. Here are the contest rules. It's going to be a random drawing. All you have to do to enter this contest is submit a question to us that we will then automatically enter you into the raffle. Now, where do you do that? You can do it on Blog Talk Radio. You can do it on our Facebook, Twitter, Google, or YouTube page. doesn't make a difference. There's going to be links today posted up there on all those sites where you can actually leave a question or a comment. We have somebody who is going to pull all of the questions and put everybody into the, the, um, the giveaway. You can also email us directly at giveaways at utlradio.com. That's the best way to do it, giveaways at utlradio.com. And your question will be asked on air, depending upon we have a lot of questions coming in. So depending upon what time we have, we'll try to get through those questions. But rest assured that your entry will be submitted when you ask the question. And then live Thursday, we're going we're gonna to have the random drawing. And someone here is going to pull a name out. And whoever, whoever the, the, the owner of that name is, you're going to own an autographed copy of Fabia's no, new book. Um, we have so far, I think, over 100 questions that have come in. And they're really good questions that people have. Not things like, are you single? Will you date me? But really good <laughs> We do have a couple of those. But, you took my question. <laughs> but this is going to be a really, really exciting show. Last week we had a great show. I encourage you to go back and download, if you haven't done so already, last week's show with uh, professional photographer Rick Garrity. He's taken pictures of people like Sylvester Stallone and Bruce Willis. So he gave a ton of really great information. If you're an amateur or pro photographer, go listen to his episode from last Thursday. Tune in to this episode 
coming up on Thursday with Fabio Viviani, um, and enter to win the autographed cookbook. We have it here in our office. We're going to be sending it out on Thursday after the winner is selected. Um, and you don't want to miss it. It's going to be, I think it's a great opportunity. We thank Fabio for being on the show and for pri- providing us with the autographed uh, cookbook. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a good show. A couple other things just to remember. Don't forget, go on to utlradio.com, click the link right below the uh, social media bar for the free app. Go out and download that free app. It is um, a way to listen to this show live or listen to uh, previously recorded episodes. You've got access to our video library right on your phone or your eye. Very happy to see that. You can ask a question to a lawyer in our offices directly through your iPhone or iPad. Submit the question, and somebody will get back to you. And we've received a tremendous amount of positive feedback, which I'm very thankful for. And we've uh, had a lot of downloads and a lot of people using the app. So, you know, I, I really am thankful and grateful that you guys are downloading the app, are making use of it. That's what it's there for. We're trying to help people get a better handle on things, a handle on the law, and understand your rights. Um, and, and it's free, free across the board. So make sure you do that. Don't forget, make use of the Audible uh, free audiobook. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio. Get your free book. Don't forget to tune in Thursday for Fabio Viviani. If you want a chance to win the book, go to utlradio.com. Use any of the social media links. Email us. Call us if you have to. And then remember, giveaways at utlradio.com. Email your questions, and we will enter you into the drawing. That's going to do it for today. Um, I think we gave out a lot of good information today, Bob. They were very interesting stories. It's a shame we couldn't get to the dance, um, but we're going to hit that one next week. (laughs) Oh, that's something that just keeps on giving, so it's not going (laughs) away anytime soon. (laughs) All right, so we'll we'll deal with those next week, but make sure everybody tunes in. Uh, We'd love to hear what you think of the show. I know the show's been running a little bit longer, but we've got a lot of information, and I I think that it's – I don't think we're wasting your time, right? You don't feel that way, do you, Bob? Absolutely not. No, you don't. And if, if if I'm learning stuff, you know it's good. There you have it. All right, I know Bob. everything. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you almost had her this morning. You tried to send me shopping today. I said, I got things to do. You want to sit with Peter for a little bit? That's fine. Oh, she's going to be the new guest host? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bob. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't wish that on you. Take care. Oh, man, that's scary. I hope she's not listening. <laughs> I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll see texts here shortly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's going to do it for uh, for this week's edition of um, Week in Review. Thank you all for listening, for downloading. Make sure you give us some feedback. Tune in Thursday. Bob and I will be back next Monday with uh, additional information. Bob, it would be great if you could get some of those guys that own the pumpkin right. farms to talk about that and um, you know maybe bring in some more sort of haunted happenings next Monday, talk about liability and Halloween and and that sort of thing, since it's kind of right around the corner, believe it or not. So that's next Monday. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, Tune in the rest of the week to the other shows. And remember that there's power in understanding the law.